So Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. I wanted you to hear this. And so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower doesn't first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war won't sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. After he was raised, Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, spiritual barbarians, to the very end of the age. All right, let's pray together. And I'm going to ask you to join me in this prayer time. God Almighty, you sent your one and only Son to be our Savior now and forever. As an outgrowth of our experience of you, we've heard the call to be your disciples and to be spiritual barbarians. We've also heard the call to invite others into that journey with you. We are your community, O oh God. Teach us, lead us, and shape us. We pray, first of all, each of us, for ourselves that we would live all in with Jesus Christ in big ways and in small ways. Let's pray. We pray also for each other that we may grow more like Jesus each day. We pray that for our friends here. We pray that for our family. We pray that for someone that we know who is most in need today. We pray for other local churches, O oh God. May your spirit move through them, displaying compassion, love, forgiveness, and power so that others may be drawn to you. We pray that Jesus would enable us to be witnesses to all people we meet through character and through words, that we would proclaim the great story of Jesus Christ, that he came in human likeness, was crucified and died, that he rose again, and that he's king over all the earth. Oh God, we acknowledge that Christ is with us until the end of the age. And, and that's all we need. Everything we long for is found in Him. And He's given us the responsibility of communicating that great news to those around us to be His physical presence on earth. We pray that we would do as Jesus did. That we would learn to fully surrender. And that we would not forget the orphan and the widow, the poor and the broken, the possessed and the suffering, the rich and the worldly. We pray that we would be light in dark places. We pray that we would be Christ to others. We pray that we would find our all in you and that we would give all that we have away to others. Okay, you may be seated.
So Paul's spiritual barbarism was defined by untamed, uncompromising focus. And what was that focus? If you miss everything else, don't miss this. He was a witness. He was a witness. That defined his life. That was the governing principle for who Paul was. He was a witness. That's what he did. He saw something, and he told others. That's why a few weeks ago, when Bill Russell was speaking here on Sunday morning, he ended it by giving us a challenge. Go fishing, he said. He was stealing Jesus' analogy for how we become influential in other people's lives. Go fishing, because we're witnesses. had a conversation, actually, with Bill this week. We were talking, and Bill said, who do you think the lead character in Acts is? And I, you know, I gave the really wise Sunday school answer. I said, God. And he said, yeah, of course, that's true of the whole Bible, but I think there might be another answer. He said, I think the lead character is the church. I think he's right. This is the story of the church. And what's the main theme of the story? The main theme of the story of Acts is witness. That's why in Acts chapter 1, at the very beginning, the beginning of the book, Luke is recounting the time at the very end of Jesus' life. He's huddled up with his few disciples, and he says this to them. Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses. Throughout Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, he offers up these concentric circles and to the very ends of the world. You're going to be my witnesses. So then right away we see Peter standing in front of a group of people witnessing. We see Peter and John in trouble before the Sanhedrin witnessing. We see Stephen overall in his life witnessing. We see Stephen before the Sanhedrin witnessing. We see Philip with a strange Ethiopian who's confused and has a Bible in front of him witnessing. We see Barnabas throughout Asia Minor, Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos throughout Europe. We see Paul throughout Asia Minor and Europe witnessing. They were witnesses. And by witnessing, what they said is, hey, this is what I've seen this is what happened to me. I want you guys to hear about it. Today we're going to do what we did last week. I warned you last week that we would. So today we're going to read large sections of the end of Acts. I'm imagining one day someone producing an eight-week miniseries with, with HBO on the life of the Apostle Paul. And I'm convinced if they did so that at least four, maybe five of the episodes would be about the chapters that we covered last week and the chapters that we're going to cover the next week and the chapters that we're going to cover today. So um, we're going to start with chapter 23, verses 11 through 22. Usually at Gateway, we stand out of reverence for God's Word, but we're going to read too much of it today to stand out of reverence for it. So what we're going to do is real quickly, we're going to stand up and sit back down just to make sure you're paying attention. So stand out of reverence for God's Word. Now you can sit back down. We did our duty. Chapter 23, verses 11 through 22, and I want you to hear how this gets launched. Paul is in really difficult straits, and Jesus appears to him and speaks to him. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified, same word, as you've been my witness about me in Jerusalem, so you must also be my witness in Rome. And then this happens, evidently. Jesus knew that Paul needed this encouragement. I'm in Acts chapter 23. It's on the screen, but I'd love for you to follow along with me if you have a Bible. Acts 23. 
The next morning, the Jews formed a conspiracy and bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. And we don't know who these Jews were. It's unlikely that it was a group of Pharisees. We've already had an encounter with Paul in the Sanhedrin between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and oddly, some of the Pharisees found themselves on Paul's side. They're a little confused. The Sadducees, of course, not at all. Probably, this is a group of zealots who might not have been Sadducees or Pharisees. This is just a group who's all about restoring the glory of Israel. Their main enemy, in fact, is Rome. But they have a secondary enemy, all these little people who are causing trouble for him, some of them even claiming to be the Messiah. And worst of all is this new sect, the Nazarenes. They follow that goofy guy from Nazareth. So they want to eradicate this. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, look, we've taken an oath not to eat anything until we have killed Paul. So they're feeling some expediency about this. The quicker they can get this done, the better. Now then, you and the Sanhedrin petitioned the commander to bring him before you and the pretext of wanting more accurate information about his case, and this is all going to work because this would have made perfect sense to the commander. By the way, we're going to learn in a few minutes that the commander's name was Claudius. But we found out last week that this Claudius had been a Greek who bought his Roman citizenship. And when he did, he took a Roman named Lysias. This commander, chief centurion over the whole guard, he's Claudius Lysias. We're ready to kill him before he gets here. This is unbelievable. Uh, But when the son of Paul's sister heard of this plot, he went to the barracks and told Paul. So Paul's nephew, evidently his family must still live in Jerusalem, his nephew hears about this plot, and he goes to the barracks to tell Paul. Then Paul called one of the centurions and said, look, take this young man to Claudius Lysias. He has something to tell him. So he took him to the commander. The centurion said, Paul the prisoner sent for me and asked me to bring this young man to you because he has something to tell you. And the commander took the young man by the hand and drew him aside and he asked, okay, so what is it? What do you want? He said, listen, sir, the the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul before the Sanhedrin tomorrow on the pretext of wanting more accurate information about him. Don't give it to them because more than 40 of them are waiting in ambush for Paul. And they've taken an oath not to eat or drink until they've killed my uncle. They're ready now, and they're waiting for your consent to their request. And Claudius Lysias, of course, immediately gets it, and he's seen the trouble that Paul has already stirred up everywhere he goes, and he doesn't want any more trouble. And I honestly, I think he's already beginning to like the apostle a little bit. He's heard this message a few times from the apostle Paul. He probably thinks he's a little crazy, but he's also intrigued. He's intrigued because everywhere Paul goes, Paul witnesses. The commander dismissed the young man and cautioned him, don't tell anyone that you have reported this to me. So I want to read real quick what a New Testament scholar, I. Howard Marshall, said about this section of material that we just read. This is awesome. He says, the decisive significance of this section of material is indicated by the preliminary incident in which the Lord Jesus appears to Paul and reassures him about the future. The vision makes it clear that what is to happen will follow a divinely initiated plan. The hand of God will guide this course of events until Paul stands before the Roman emperor. 
Nothing is said about the outcome of this trial before Caesar, a topic which is outside of the horizon of Acts. So we don't find out what happens to Paul here, although Christian tradition tells us that he is eventually beheaded under the emperor Nero, but Nero is not in charge yet. What is significant is that the appearance of Paul before the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem is described as, quote, witness. And that Paul's appearance before the emperor will also be for the purpose of, quote, witnessing to Jesus. So the encouragement was obviously needed because the water is about to heat to a boiling point for Paul. And his nephew finds out about the plot, takes it to the commander, and the commander, of course, says, yeah, okay, let's do something about this. So now let's find out what he does. Claudius Lysias called two of his centurions and ordered them, get ready, a detachment of 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at nine tonight. That was probably half of his entire detachment. He's sending half of his entire detachment in protection of the Apostle Paul to get him from Jerusalem to Caesarea and get him out of harm's way so that some kind of justice can be done here. We can figure out what in the world to do with this guy. He wrote a letter as follows. Claudius Lysias, and in the ancient Near East, this is how they would, they would begin a letter by identifying the sender. To His Excellency, Governor Felix. And the second thing they would have done is identify. You see this in the letters of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. The second thing they would have done is, so they didn't begin their letters, dear so-and-so. They began their letters, Ed Allen, the most excellent resident of Ashburn, Virginia, dear James. He goes on, greetings. So this man, and obviously the letters to be delivered with the Apostle Paul, this man was seized by the Jews and they were about to kill him. But I came with my troops and rescued him, for I learned that he was a Roman citizen. He's giving himself entirely too much credit, isn't he? He didn't find out he was a Roman citizen until he was about to beat him. (laughs) But he went in and rescued him because it was just so, it was a riot in the city of Jerusalem. He was just trying to calm things down. I wanted to know why they were accusing him, so I brought him to the Sanhedrin. I found that the accusations had to do with questions about their law, their religion. I didn't get it. But there was no charge against him that deserved death or imprisonment. When I was informed of a plot to be carried out against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordered his accusers to present to you their case against him. So the soldiers, carrying out their orders, took Paul with them during the night and brought him as far as Antipatris. The next day, they let the cavalry go on with him while they returned to the barracks. When the cavalry arrived in Caesarea, they delivered the letter to the governor and handed Paul over to him. The governor read the letter and asked what province he was from because sometimes these kinds of cases would be transferred to the province where the resident came from. In this case, Governor Felix decides he'll keep the case on his own docket. The governor read the letter, asked what province he's from. Learning that he was from Cilicia, he said, I'll hear your case when your accusers get here. Then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace. So now he's in Caesarea. Here's what's interesting. Tiberius Claudius Felix, the governor here, he was the brother of a freed slave named Paulus, who was known to be corrupt, and he was also a favorite of Emperor Claudius and then later Nero. We can only imagine what engendered an unsavory character like this to the emperor might have been, what kind of tasks he would have ended up carrying out for the emperor. Probably because of Paulus's influence with the emperor, his brother Felix also became a freedman, and in a pretty short period of time, he rose to dizzying heights politically. 
again, Paulus is in the ear of the emperor, and Felix keeps getting promoted. He eventually became the governor of Judea in 52 AD, and he was sent there in part, and he tried to suppress the the rebellions that were periodic in Judea, but he used such violence, and he so alienated the local Jews. I mean, he's well known in Roman history books. So violent, he so alienated the local Jewish population, they recalled him back to Rome after just two years. His third wife, we're going to hear about in just a minute, was a woman named Drusilla, his third wife. And she was the daughter of King Herod Agrippa I. So King Herod Agrippa was part Jew from a half-Jewish ancestry, and he was the king over part of Judea and, and the outskirts and part of what is now Syria. Pretty influential guy. Again, unpopular in Jewish circles because he was part Jewish, but he was a co-conspirator with the Romans. And then there's a governor over Judea who kind of has to play nice with King Herod. So King Herod I, his daughter, Drusilla, ends up married. This guy, Felix, helps Drusilla get rid of her first husband. So you see what kind of family this is, and then he marries Drusilla, and he ends up getting the governorship of Judea. So the Roman historian Tacitus described Felix like this, he exercised royal power with the mind of a slave. So they bring Paul before Felix five days later. The apostle Paul comes before Felix, and I, I, you know, I don't think Felix was a big fan of the Jews, so Initially, I suspect he might have favored Paul, except for two things. Number one, he doesn't want any more trouble with the Jews than he already has. And he can tell this guy is causing trouble. And secondly, I suspect for Felix's tastes, Paul is a bit uppity. It's clear that this is an extremely well-educated man. You know that from his Aramaic and from his Greek. You also know it because as you read through this story, the Apostle Paul is not only extremely familiar with Jewish law, he knows Roman law as well. So I suspect Felix thinks that Paul is probably a little too high and mighty. They bring Paul into court, and Felix convenes the court, and the Jews have hired a lawyer named Tertullus, he's a hired gun, but Paul ends up representing himself. And Tertullus comes and makes these elaborate, you know, oh, great, grand, Felix, you're awesome, which is what you would have done in a courtroom setting. And then he lays out the charges, and honestly, they amount to very little. The charges are essentially that he's a troublemaker. In other words, he's accusing him of sedition against Rome. And secondly, he's the leader of the Nazarene sect. Now, The the Christians never called themselves the Nazarene sect. I suspect that this was a derisive term. I was talking with somebody this week. I happen to think that Eric Knox, Eric and Lynn aren't here today, but Eric Knox and I are contrary examples. But I grew up in South Carolina. The state of South Carolina is not necessarily known for its highbrow education. In fact, we vie every year with Mississippi and Arkansas for who's going to be 50th in overall education in the United States. So this is almost like saying, you know, he led that South Carolinian sect. Because some of you who are familiar with Jesus' story, you know that a couple of times in his story, it would be yelled out at him almost from the crowd, what good can come from Nazareth? Because this was a proverbial statement, you know, Nazareth, that's like, what? What's like South Carolina? Didn't you marry your cousin, Jesus? So he led the sect of the Nazarenes, which was this, you know, well-known divisive group, 
aberrant religion from, out of Judaism. So he's, a, he's sedition, he's leading this aberrant religion, and thirdly, he tried to desecrate the temple. This matters not at all to Felix. But he knows he's got to keep peace in Judea, so it's got to matter some. So then Paul makes his defense. Essentially in his defense, Paul says, look, I'm well known, and so are my activities. I came here for the purpose of worshiping. It's true that I worship God, and I worship the God who has manifested himself in the Nazarene in Jesus. By the way, there are plenty of people who can give evidence of this. There was no crowd around me in the temple. I wasn't stirring up any trouble. But, by the way, Felix, I do believe in the resurrection of the dead, and frankly, that's why I'm here on trial. As Rob Showers said to me, Rob's a lawyer, and as Rob said to me last week after last week's message, Rob was noting how excellent a lawyer Paul is. Paul is constantly finding a way to say, hey, don't look at me, look over here. And this was one of the ways of doing that. It's interesting here to note verse 14 in Paul's defense. And I don't have this on the screen, so listen to this if you don't have a Bible open in front of you. I'm in chapter uh, 24. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets. In other words, even in this really short defense, the Apostle Paul is acting as a witness. Always. Uh, Christians believed that the way they were worshiping God was the right way. Can I explain that to you for a moment? Here's in effect what the Apostle Paul is saying here, and he says many times in his letters. And what he says to other Jewish believers consistently, Paul says in effect this, if I can use an analogy. It's almost like saying, I don't know how many of you know the, the Janney family well. Sorry, Jeff, I didn't ask your permission for this. But their son... Josh, their second son, I think Josh looks just like Jeff. So I want you to imagine two people standing and talking together. Yeah, and blah, 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 blah. And, and that, that guy, Jeff DeJani. <gasps> I know Jeff DeJani. He's a great guy. Yeah, he's, he is a great guy. He is, I mean, that Jeff DeJani, that, that Jeff will do anything for you. He will do anything. He is an awesome guy. Yeah, he's, you know, he's, he's, like, he's super tall and incredibly incredibly fat he's got long red hair and it wait wait no that's that's not jeff yeah sure it is i know his son yeah yeah me too his son yeah exactly yes his son he's kind of super awkward again flaming red hair he's got tattoos all up wait that's not his son at all i don't think you know jeff DeJanny. you get it What Paul is saying is, hey, I know God the Father. He created the world. He's epic. He's awesome. He's sovereign. He's holy. His son came to see us. We didn't recognize his son. Then you must not know the Father. Because if you knew me, if you knew the son, you'd know the Father. The family resemblance is remarkable. We worship God the way he was designed, the way he was intended to be worshipped. We recognized him when he came. That's what Paul is saying. He's witnessing. The trial was suspended awaiting Claudius' arrival, so Paul remains in custody. Now let's pick up the story in verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was a Jewish, and we've told you about Drusilla. 
He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ. Now remember who he's talking to. He's talking to Felix and Drusilla. (laughs) I love this. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid. (laughs) And he said, okay, that's enough for now. I've had enough. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. He doesn't want to hear any more about righteousness and the judgment to come. But he's not finished with Paul, and we'll find out it's not necessarily because he's spiritually seeking. During Paul's testimony recounting, Paul said that one of the reasons he came to Jerusalem is he brought a large sum of money from Asia Minor and the European churches to bring to the believers in Jerusalem to help them out because times were hard in Jerusalem. Felix hears this, and he, you know, Felix sees dollar signs. So at the end of this, it says, at the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently to talk to him, but he's really just looking for a bribe. Verse 27, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Two years. He's done nothing wrong. No one has even brought a legitimate charge against him. Uh, Portius Festus seems to have been a good ruler. He took over right after Felix, although he had a very short rule, somewhere between two and four years, and at the end of his rule, he died. So the trial before Festus goes like this. Three days after arriving in the province, three days, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem where the chief priests and Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They urgently requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem. Of course they did, for they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. Festus answered, Paul's being held at Caesarea and I myself am going there. Some of your leaders can come with me and press charges against the man there if he's done anything wrong. After spending eight or ten days with them, he went down to Caesarea and the next day he convened the court and ordered Paul be brought before him. When Paul appeared, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him bringing many serious charges against him which they could not prove. Then Paul makes a brief defense. Then sometime later, after this court appearance before Festus, King Agrippa arrives. Now, I've already mentioned King Herod Agrippa I. Well, this is King Herod Agrippa II. So he's probably the half-brother of, by the way, Drusilla. And this is kind of like a state visit. It's also a family visit. This is all incestuous. It's like the, you know, reading about the European monarchs in the Middle Ages and later. So King Agrippa arrives with Bernice, the character is mentioned in here. Here's the thing you need to know about Bernice. Bernice was not his wife. Bernice was his sister who traveled with him everywhere he went amongst court intrigue and rumor and innuendo about their relationship. So Bernice is also here and seeing probably her sister or her half-sister, Drusilla. And during this visit, Festus consults with Agrippa. He wants Agrippa's opinion about what to do with Paul. Agrippa knows the Jews and Judaism. Festus needs help with this thorny case. And Agrippa ends up saying, well, I want to hear Paul myself. So now we get to the meat of it. I'm in verse 23 of chapter 25. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought to live no longer. 
I found he'd done nothing deserving of death. But because he's made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. So at the end of his case with Festus, he says, I want to see Caesar, which evidently any Roman citizen had the right to claim, and he would be transferred under the right conditions to Caesar's court. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission. Speak for yourself. Now the people in the room are thinking, "Uh Uh-oh, here he goes. So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. Now up until this point, Paul is always in chains. So evidently they've either loosened the chains or they've taken the chains off. Now you know that there are Roman centurions for whom this is at least the third or fourth time they've heard this. And they're thinking, Agrippa, why did you say that? But Luke, Luke is at the back of the room and Luke is saying, I love it when he does this. So Paul motioned with his hands and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. He's giving Agrippa way too much credit here. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. The Jews all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child from the beginning of my life in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They've known me for a long time and can testify if they are willing that according to the strictest sect of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee and now it is because of, and don't miss this, it's because of my hope in what God has promised our fathers that I'm on trial today. He can't stop himself. This is the promise our 12 tribes are hoping to to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. O King, it's because of this hope that the Jews are accusing me. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the saints in prison, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Now Bernice and King Agrippa are leaning forward. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. In my obsession against them, I even went to foreign cities to persecute them. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. And Luke is going, yeah, preach it, Paul, because he's heard him do this so many times and he can't stand it when he does. He gets so excited. We fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, speaking in my native tongue to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now that's a term that would have been well known to these listeners. It was a rural agrarian term in the ancient Near East. It meant, you know, when they wanted to get an oxen to move somewhere, they would get a goad and they would beat the oxen with it to get it to start plowing. And kicking against the goads is when the farmer would hit the oxen with the goat, and the oxen would do this. Paul, why are you kicking at me? This is me. This is God Almighty. Then I ask, who are you, Lord? Agrippa and Bernice are going, yeah, who are you? I'm Jesus, whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you've seen of me and what I will show you. This is what I want you to do, Paul. I don't, it's not, the, the job description is not very elaborate. I just want you to witness. 
I want you to say, this is what I saw. This is what happened. This is who I was. This is who I am now. You figure it out. Down to verse 19. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem, and then in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and prove their repentance by their deeds. That's why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I had God's help to this very day. And so I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles at this point. Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're crazy, Paul. Look, you're out of your mind. I know how smart you are. I know how well-educated you are. Paul, you're great. You're, it's, it's driven you crazy. You've gotten all wrapped up in all these big theological questions. We don't care. I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. And the king is familiar with these things. And I can speak freely to him. I'm convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you do. Paul is preaching. And then King Agrippa says to Paul, I love this, King Agrippa says to Paul, you think in such a short time you're going to persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul gives the greatest reply in the New Testament. Short time or long. I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today will become just what I am except for these chains. The king rose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. They left the room and while talking with one another they said, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Festus adds, he might be crazy, but I agree. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. Just like Paul, our spiritual barbarity depends on us having an uncompromising, untamed focus on our life and our story as witness. Being a witness is a central part of who we are. Being a witness to what God has done in us and what we've seen him do around us is one of the governing principles of our lives. Or at least it should be. Look, this is what God has done in my life. This is what I've seen God do around me. You are a witness in your family. Parents, you start your career catering, and then you control, and then you coach, and then you consult, and then you care. But through it all, your central identity is a witness. You are a witness to what God has done in you and what you've seen God do around you. We had a significant incident with one of our children when they were a teenager, and they had someone in authority treat them with unnecessary, maybe even inappropriate cruelty. So they left this incident, walked home, surprisingly, from where they were. I walk into the house later that day to find my wife and one of my sons, and my wife is saying to the son, not, I told you so, or not, well, let's march up there and tell, we're going to sue. But I hear my wife saying, you know, this is something that we've talked to you about, buddy. This is a part of your life that God wants to speak into. And he's using this incident 
to speak into your life. This is God. She was being a witness. It's apparent. A few months ago, I said to Jordan, Jordan, I want you to come with me to the Dominican Republic because I want you to see what God is doing through Ina. I want to witness that with you. And I want you to be a witness. to See what God is doing. Your central job description as a parent is witness. It's not diaper changer. It's witness. As a husband, your central job description is witness. Wife, your central job description is witness. That means sometimes when your husband starts to go crazy and lose perspective, you need to be CPO of the home. You need to be chief perspective officer. You need to say, well, time out. Let's look at what God might be doing here. Because your chief job is witness. Don't sleep on that. Don't check this off. This is just another sermon. This is just another Sunday morning. Your central job is witness. You don't have to have all the answers. You're not the convictor. You're not the explainer. You're not the figurer-outerer. You're not the answerer-all. You're the witness. I don't know, but this is what I've seen at work. This is a central part of your job description as a Christian, to witness. You might be a programmer or a developer or a manager or a teacher or a lawyer or assistant. Those are your cover. Your job is witness. This is what I've seen. And this is what I've heard. When things are challenging at work, that's just an opportunity to witness. First of all, through your character. You handle the situation and everyone involved with patience and uncommon grace. And then they end up asking, how do you do that? And you say, well, you know, I have this connection with God and he's just working on this in my life. Or you handle the situation very badly, but you're the one who goes back to your coworker and says, I'm so sorry. God has been working on that in my life. I'd love to tell you about that sometime. Because your central job description is witness. That's all. You're a witness. That's what we've been called to. Someone at work has a crisis. You're the one who says, I'm so sorry. Would you mind if I pray for you right now? Because God has answered my prayers before. and I've actually known people for whom he's answered exactly this request. Who knows but that God might move here and now. Because you're a witness. Chapter 27. Next to the last chapter in Acts. Next week, Dean is going to take us through the very last chapter in Acts. But chapter 27, I want you to go home this afternoon and read it. In the eight-part HBO miniseries on the Apostle Paul, if four of the episodes are about this period in Paul's life, one whole episode is devoted to chapter 27. And it's dramatic. They've got, what's his name, Williams, the guy who did the Star Wars theme and all the others. They've got him doing the music for this one episode of HBO. They're on a boat. They're out in the Mediterranean. They're sailing Paul from Judea all the way to Rome, and they run into a storm. Paul tells them, you know, look, I don't think this is going to go well. The sailors shut up your rabbi. We don't want to hear from you. Sure enough, they get overwhelmed, and there's actually a shipwreck. And then Paul hears from God. By the way, Paul, I told you I was going to get you to Rome, and I am. 
and I'm going to save all of these people as well. So Paul goes to all of the guys on the boat, and he witnesses. Let me tell you what I heard from God. We're all going to be safe, but you're going to get a little wet. We're all going overboard, but you need to stay near the boat, and if you do, we're all going to be saved. Because Paul knew he was a spiritual barbarian. He had an uncompromising, untamed focus on what he had seen and what he had heard and what he had experienced from the hand of God. So in your life as a school teacher, as a neighbor, as a baseball coach, in your life as a secretary or a manager, the central part of your job description is witness. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for what you've done in our lives, and I thank you for the privilege of being a witness to it. Lord, we do. We look at the Apostle Paul and we think we come up so far short. And we recognize he was a guy just like us, struggling with the same things we struggle with. And I suspect, Lord, he had the uncompromising habit of getting the small things right consistently. And so when it was time for the big things, he was ready. I pray this morning, Lord, for opportunities this week to be a witness, not an explainer, not an answerer, not a convictor, not a judge, certainly, but a witness. This is what we've seen. Because, Lord, we've seen it. We've seen how you use your witnesses. Make us part of that band. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.